thanks, Sean, for reading the passage and sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, be assured that our prayers will continue to be with your family yeah, and your community during this really challenging and, and, and unique time. Yeah. For the rest of you, let me add my, my welcome and good morning to you. It's great to be you know, together once again. We've got a, a beautiful little passage that Sean read out for us this morning. Two verses, right? It sounds like not a whole lot, but trust me, they, they pack a real punch. There's a whole lot in there. You know, John is giving us in these, these two verses two assurances, okay? One assurance of eternal life and one assurance regarding prayer. And that's what we're going to explore together today, one after one after the other. Assurance is huge for, for John in this time because uh, contextually thinking there was a whole lot of you know, Gnostic thought going around during, during this time that was, was threatening to seep into the church. And so he's writing to his dear children saying, hey, um, I want you to be assured of these things. I want you to know, to know, to know. Three times in these two verses that expression to know comes up. I want you to know these things. I want you to be assured of them so that the doubt and skepticism of, of, of Gnosticism that's, that's creeping in, no, you can say, no, 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 trust me, I know. I know who my Jesus is. I know about eternal life and I know about prayer. So two assurances, one regarding eternal life, one regarding prayer. That's how we're going we're gonna to work through some morning together. Let me just revisit verse 13, just so it's fresh as we tap into our first assurance. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it's interesting because in your Bible, you might notice that, oh, this comes up with a new, new paragraph, new heading, the start of John's kind of concluding thoughts. And yet we'd almost miss something if we just took it as that, because verse 13 really is, is fundamentally linked back to verse 10, to verse 11, to verse 12 that we looked at kind of last week. Let me recap some of the, the logic that John's flowed through, and you'll see how verse 13 is really the climax of these preceding verses. Let me, let me demonstrate. So verse 11, it says, God has given us eternal life. Where's this life from? Well, it says the life is in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son does not have life. The logic is, is pretty sound. It's pretty clear. With the son, life. Without the son, no life. And so we see that verse 13, therefore, when we, when we get to that, it's really an assurance, it's an affirmation, it's this, yes, this is how it is regarding life, regarding Jesus. It's this climax of, of what's happened in verse 11 and 12. And yet there's actually a deeper layer here. It's not just verse 11 and 12 that verse 13 is a climax to. No, 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 no. This, this verse here is actually a climax to a whole lot that John's been writing all the way back to the beginning of his letter. How do we know this? Well, we've got to go there to, to find out. Let's go back to 1 John 1, reading from the very beginning. 1 John 1, 1. It's a lot of ones. And we read there, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life has appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which, the, which was with the Father and, and has appeared to us. Do you notice some of those kind of similar themes and, and similar messages there? John's proclaiming that life has appeared, 
The life is in the Son, sent from the Father, and we experience that we enter in it through, through belief in knowing knowing Him. It's the same at 1 John 1 as it is in, in 1 John 5, 13. This is remarkable. John in his gospel also says a very similar thing in his, his opening. John 1, 4, in Him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Later in John 6, 35, Jesus Himself says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 3.16, John 3.36 affirm the same truth. So what's this telling us? Well, this is making it very clear that John's desire is this proclamation or this affirmation or this assurance of Jesus as the source of life. Jesus is life. And so therefore, we cannot, in fact, it's impossible to think of eternal life, anything in regards to eternal life as separate from Christ. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They cannot be. Let me put it like this. If there was no sun in the sky, there would be no light. Without the sun in heaven, Jesus, there is no life. Why? Well, because the sun in the sky is the source of light. And Jesus, the Son in, in heaven, is the source of life. It all springs forth from, from him. So when it comes to the eternal life that, that 1 John 5.13 is, is talking about, that eternal life is no different. It comes from the source of, of Jesus himself. I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's writing, he's saying, I write that you may know life. I write that you may know Jesus and through that, that you may experience life. You have the Son in him, in Christ, Christ in me. That's life. That's what it's all about. And that's what's driving him. That's his motivation to write these things. What's really interesting is John makes another statement of purpose, another statement of intent at the start of his, his letter. And yet this statement, initially at least, seems to be in a different kind of vein of thought. If we go back to 1 John 1 verses 3 now, 3 to 4, it says, says this from the back half of verse 3, And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. John's purpose in writing is that your joy may be complete. But he also says in chapter 5, 13, I, I write these things to you that you may know life. So we've got joy on one hand is his purpose in writing and life in, in another hand. Well, what do we do with that? How do we understand this, this seeming difference? On first glance, it appears a discrepancy, but, but we must realize that, that John is introducing at the start this concept of complete joy. He doesn't describe where the content of that lies within. And we realize that once we get to, to John, 1 John 5, 13, the answer is almost there for us. Oh, complete joy is found or experienced through this, this experience of eternal life in knowing Christ. Let me, let me affirm that from, from another passage that if you've been around this church, you'll be quite familiar with, John 15. It talks about the, the abiding life. 
And abiding is a, a familiar term for us at, at the vine, so much so that you, you might see it around the church building in, in different places, but I can't, can't quite remember where. John 15, the abiding life, the life of remaining, the, the life of, of dwelling, the life of living within this recognition of Christ in us and us, us in Christ. And it's in this context that Jesus makes this statement, John 15, verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is where John's purpose statement, I, I write that your joy may be complete, is fully explained. Because complete joy is God's joy. Without, without God, there can be no joy. Just without the, the Son, there can be no life. And we realize there's actually this parallel train happening here. The source of life, just as the source of joy, come from the same place. They both come from God. And we can only experience these things in our believing and in our knowing of him. Remember before I said three times to know comes up. It's a really important part of the assurance that John is affirming. To know Christ, to be in Christ and Christ in us. That's the intimate relationship that he's affirming in this place. And yet we can't experience intimate relationship lest we believe. We can't know someone intimately if we don't believe in them. It's not how it works. And so our belief is the entrance way by which we enter into God's life that is full and God's joy that is complete. Eternal life is this discovery of that, of that journey, starting now and until forever. Complete joy is God's joy. Complete joy is experienced in abiding. Complete life or full life, life to the full, comes from God and is experienced by us in abiding. That's what verse 13 and John's purpose statements are all about life and joy, the same essence, because they come from the same source and are experienced by that same truth. So the encouragement, therefore, I, I guess the application of, of this reality is don't seek out life to the full and don't seek out to complete your own joy because that, that would be assuming that they are the ends to the means themselves. No, 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 no. Seek out the source himself. Always start there. Because as you seek out the source of, of life and the source of joy, who's Jesus, the Son, the natural overflow is that you'll experience life to the full and that you'll experience joy that's complete. These things by themselves can't be pursued. They can only be pursued within the context of, of knowing Christ. That's, that's, that's the wonderful reality of it. Seek Christ. And that's our first assurance, that these things will happen, that we'll experience complete joy and life to the full as we press in and know Christ more. First one, done. Let's take a, take a breather. Pause, we'll let that settle for a second because we're about to move on to our second assurance. And this is a profound assurance regarding, regarding prayer. So the first assurance regarding eternal life, this assurance now regarding prayer. Let me read uh, verse 14 and 15 of 1 John 5 just to, to refresh us of, of what it says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. 
Now, in my life, there have been many occasions in which I've got this verse 85% right. Now, in an exam context at school, if I got an 85%, I'd be wrapped with that. It would be good. But, but in this context, no, this doesn't cut the mustard. I'd be missing it. I'd be missing a part and I'd feel almost disillusioned about prayer. I'd feel disappointed in prayer. I'd feel frustrated at God. Like, why are you not answering my prayer? You say, don't you, that we can have confidence in approaching God, asking anything we want, knowing that he's going to hear us. And if he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. That's pretty much what the verse says, isn't it? And yet I'd pray that every night and then the next morning I'd, I'd wake up and I'd, I'd go out to my garage and the Ferrari that I'd prayed for isn't there. And I have this question of God, what's wrong? What are you doing wrong? What, why is it not working out the way that, that I thought you, you said? And then I, th- there was this realisation of this, this key ingredient that I, was, that I was missing that changes everything regarding prayer. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think when it comes to prayer, we often um, have this misconception that that prayer is almost exclusively or primarily asking God to do things for us for our benefit so that we can have a better, more comfortable life so things can go well for us. And we are the primary object of, of prayer and God is the secondary actor who, who elicits to our, our, our needs and, 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 and requests and demands. And some of that is, is not, not, not true. There's some of that is actually true, but, but I think the fundamental foundational um, thinking regarding that is, is missing the point. In fact, it needs to be totally the other way around. God is primary and we are secondary in our understanding of prayer. Jesus models this beautifully for us, both in his life and in his teaching. In his teaching, we see in Matthew 6, verses 10, he says, he's teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done, God. That's how I want you guys to pray. Your will be done. Your will be done. He not only teaches it, though, he goes to live it out. In one of the most trying circumstances anyone will ever face in, in Luke 22, verse 4, it records this, this prayer of Jesus. Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. Both Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching demonstrate for us that prayer is not about convincing God to join your perspective, but prayer is about surrendering yourself that you may align with his Prayer is about asking God, help me see things the way you see things. Help me see what you want in this outcome and help me pray in alignment with that. John Stott, a Bible commentator, beautifully summarizes it by saying saying the following. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done, God. Now, on face value, this might, it might seem a little bit disheartening for, for us. I know for me it has at, at times, but trust me, if our prayer is, is always rooted in this, this petition of God, your will be done, if that's always the root of it, it's actually a really good thing. Why? Well, because Romans 12.2 tells us that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. 
I don't know about you, but in my life, take my best, my most loving, my most sacrificial day that I've ever lived, a 24-hour period, and I can't look at any single day for an entire day, just one day, and say my will throughout that whole day was always perfectly good, perfectly pleasing, and perfectly perfect. It just wasn't. And yet God's always is. And so there's actually a real encouragement to this realignment of perspective in prayer where God is primary and it all orientates around God, your will be done because your will is good. Your will is pleasing. Your will is perfect. And therefore your will for my life is the best place that I can be. It's the best place that I can be. So naturally then we've got to ask the question, well, how do we, how do we know God's will? It's the million-dollar question, right? And Romans 12.2 gives us this answer that that's not one that's just a cookie-cutter kind of easy, easy cop-out answer. No, 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 this is, this is an experience. This is an exciting journey that we get to go on. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not conform to the patterns of this world. Don't do that, no. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His, what is it? What's his will? His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we are renewed, we become more attuned to his will. The logic is really sound because whose image are we being renewed into? We're being renewed more into the image of God. And as we become more renewed into the image of God in our mind, we will naturally start to think more in alignment with what God wills, with what God desires, with what God sees of a particular situation. And therefore, our prayers will naturally more flow forth from, from that place. And this is the only parameter to prayer, being aligned to the will of God, within which there are no boundaries no boundaries to what we can pray and no boundaries to what he will then answer. It's a beautiful journey that we get to go on. Let me conclude with, with Psalm 37, the opening couple of verses of it, beautifully paint this, this picture of, of exploring God's will, God's desire, God's heart. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God's promise here in, in Psalm 37 is really clear. He will give you all the desires of your heart as you delight in him. Why? Because when we delight in God, our desires reflect his desires. Our delights reflect his des delights. Our, our will closer aligns and is more attuned to reflect his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Two assurances, the assurance of, of life, a life that is full and a joy that is complete, experienced through knowing Christ. 
and an assurance regarding prayer that he will answer your prayers. There's no parameters to that. Let's, as, so long as it's w- within the will of God, within the desires of God. So how do we respond? Well, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart the renewed mind, the delighting of, of him. That's, that's the journey that we're invited to go on each, each day. And I pray that's the journey that we will continue to flesh out and, and thrash out this week and sit with and, and meditate. May I encourage you to sit with these, these passages and, and these reflections, continue to allow them to, to penetrate in, in, in through your life and your experience. Have a blessed week. <laughs>